So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Hey, uh, I'm Nate Larkin, here with your friend of mine, David Hampton. Uh, our weekly appointment to have this conversation where we always invite a guest. I really look forward to this time every week, David. Oh, yeah, me too. It's a it's a great time, and we get to visit a little bit, but also uh, we get to talk to some pretty interesting people doing some uh, pretty interesting stuff. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a great guest coming up. Uh, it's uh, as it so happens today. It is a rainy day. Spring is here in Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trees are blooming. The grass is growing. I've already mowed my lawn twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Easter is coming up this Sunday. Uh, yeah, Lent has come to an end. <laughs> coming to a screeching halt. As yeah. The- uh, now, Allie and I love this church that we're part of right now. Uh, a wonderful Presbyterian church. Mm. Now, uh, this is a this is a culture that is not uh, alcohol obsessed, but alcohol friendly. One of the things that we've noticed as we've made more friends, we've gone to social functions, mm-hmm. is that some people drink, some people don't. Alcohol is pretty much always present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Allie and I have the conversation in the car on our way there. Uh, it's it's. it's it's still, we're making new friends, mm-hmm. and it's sometimes a little bit awkward to say, no, uh, no thanks, no one yeah. for me today. Yeah, 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 yeah uh, it is, uh, and I get that, and, um, you know, I think it, it comes with uh, uh, our motivation for why we do or don't uh, believe we uh, need to be engaging in it, and, and maybe, uh-huh. the, you know, certainly the level of whether we, you know, have problematic uh, issues with yeah. it. Yeah, being Episcopalian, Nate, you know, Lent is kind of a is kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, we, we, everybody's in deprivation mode. You know, up until <laughs> Christian up until, Ramadan right now. Okay, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. up until Easter, and then you know, Easter hits, and man, it is, uh, you know, pull out the the <laughs> wine, the bourbon, the whatever you've given up for. For Lent, yeah. uh, the the chocolate, yeah. the you know the whatever, and uh, you know, and and man, it's, it's sometimes it's like a it's a it's a it's a pile on of, uh, of yeah. catching up, making up for lost time, kind of stuff. But yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a motivation, and I understand the you know the the, the premise of it and everything. But um, but I have had people that have stopped doing different things through Lent, and they continue to stop because they realize they feel better, they sleep better, they're taking yeah. better care of themselves, and life uh, didn't have some of the hiccups that it yeah. did uh, when they were. 
you know, participating in these other things that they've, you know, put on hold. So I don't know. What do you, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I find these conflicting emotions because one of the things, you know, I'm, they say, you know, scratch an addict, you'll find a codependent. Sure. There's a, there's, I don't want people to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I do have this sense, you know, I kind of go like, take the temperature of the room and I don't want anybody to feel awkward if they've chosen to drink because I've chosen not to. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially if I don't know these people, we're just making friends in a mm-hmm. new church. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of, there's, I have a headwind there mm-hmm. and I will admit that I have had a drink I didn't want to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I nursed it all night uh, and still regretted having it because uh, I'm getting older. I'm in my mid sixties now, mm-hmm. and uh, alcohol, does, you know, affects me differently than it did mm-hmm. when I was younger. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, yeah. uh, and 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 also there was I didn't want to do it, and I did. My there's still this addictive mm-hmm. part of myself. I'm ambivalent on the on the subject of of alcohol still. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, I knew it was in my best interest not to drink. My best mm-hmm. physical interest, my best yeah. emotional uh, interest. Yeah, I somehow thought that perhaps it would be better in my social interest, right, to drink. Yeah, right? yeah. Then made the decision, which I regretted. Mm-hmm. Ah! Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, and, and it was interesting. You said, you know, you don't want people to feel uncomfortable, and uh, right. so you, you know, accepted it. I don't want people to feel uncomfortable, which is why I don't drink. Because I, <laughs> when I drink, I make people very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, you know, I realized at 45 that, you know, uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe uh, it's just the opposite for me. You know, perhaps yeah, yeah. Uh, when I start uh, the, when I start down that road, it uh, it can it has the tendency to make the all filters, of us. Like, the filters go away. The and, filters you know. go away. Everything you ever thought was a good idea. <laughs> to say or do, uh, you know, things you thought were funny, uh, in your, yeah, fifth, yeah, yeah. your fifth glass of wine are not altogether <laughs> funny to people who are only on their second. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, uh, so it, out of the same interest of, uh, uh, people in their comfort, uh, I have elected not to drink, but there you yeah, go. That's good. <laughs> that's a good decision. You know, uh, we have a guest coming up. Yeah. Well, I think takes a wonderful kind of rational approach Mm -hmm. to alcohol. He's really trying to take, yeah, just take an objective, rational approach to drinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's different. This is different from a lot of the messages we get from other people Mm -hmm. who are in this sobriety space. Mm -hmm. And definitely worth worth listening to. Uh, This is a very... uh, Enlightening and entertaining conversation. Uh, You're not going to want to miss this. Stay close. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, joining us today is... Uh, a very interesting and inspiring author, speaker, uh, a guy who uh, has got a lot to add to the conversation about, especially alcohol recovery. 
But interestingly, a guy who never hit the wall, who never wound up in jail, who didn't lose all his stuff to this disease, but somehow, somewhere along the line, through a found, uh, he saw the light. Uh, uh, David, would you introduce our guest? I will. Yeah, this is Ken Middleton, and he's coming to us from the Atlanta, Georgia area. And Ken um, is an author and a, uh, an entrepreneur of uh, many areas, but he uh, has a he has a publication that I think is really interesting. It's called "Alcohol Is Not Your Friend," and it's A I N Y F. And he has a website, and it's got some really helpful uh, uh, things on the website. I, I got had just a chance, Ken, to kind of uh, cruise through the website and see that you've got uh, things on there that are really practical that people can um, uh, in, embrace and, and incorporate into their own recovery, depending on, on how they identify uh, with yep. their issue. But but you're approaching this to people, as Nate mentioned, that uh, may or may not identify as uh, substance use disordered or alcoholic or yep. uh, whatever, but who know that maybe alcohol isn't working for them the way it used to or the way they hoped it would. And you've also got, I want to mention this, you've got a new book, congratulations, on April 1st that came out. It's called Bamboozled, love the title, How Alcohol Makes Fools of All all of us. So uh, that's enough of my rambling. So again, welcome to the podcast. Nate, David, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Nate, just to clear up one thing, I did land in jail, unfortunately. I did have a little stint, and not a stint, but I did actually get a DUI, which I talk about in the book. Um, oh, okay. Drinking. So I mean, it did happen to me, but that wasn't the impetus that made me recognize that I had an issue with drinking or I should give up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and it, to your point, David, earlier, yeah, Enough. When I created Enough, it was really around creating a publication that gave people voices that may not have it. Because what I tell people, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. How I quit drinking was what worked for me, right? But mm-hmm. it may yeah, not yeah. work for everyone else. Yeah. When I created Enough, I wanted to invite every individual that had a voice and went through it to share what they did. So you will see so many writers. I think we have over 200 writers there now that I'm super proud of Mm -hmm. who are just giving their tips and strategies and views that hopefully resonate with the reader and help them to become alcohol conscious, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Would you say, Ken, that you kind of unconsciously, subconsciously absorbed a cultural message as a young adult, right? about alcohol and its importance for living a full and enjoyable adult life? So let's, if talking back to what they call the origin story for me, it was the quintessential mm-hmm. origin story of, of most people that, that learn how to drink, uh, Nate and David. Mm-hmm. It was just natural. Mm-hmm. Went through high school. I didn't drink at all. Yeah. I never yeah. touched drink. Nor did I. Okay. Super lucky in that respect, right? Mm-hmm. As I got to college, you're around people you don't know. You're putting right. an environment in which alcohol is everything that people do, right? Yeah, right, and sure. And you're, you're dealing with all the pressures of trying to pass classes that really is going to set the foundation for the rest of your life. So talk about natural anxiety and pressure and stress. So mm-hmm. what environment would not create somebody that would, would drink, right? It, it's created right, to sure. engineer yeah. that in you. And so growing up, even though I didn't drink, we I, I still thought about alcohol as being something that uh, most people did as adults. Now I had told myself I was going to wait till I was 21, but mm-hmm. then when I got to college, I was a little naive and recognized yeah. nobody. <laughs> <makes sense. laughs> That's 21. Yeah. And, uh, and I started drinking at 19. I got pulled into the party lifestyle 
Um, and I'll, I'll be very transparent with you guys because I talked about it in the book. Growing up without a father, I didn't have anyone to teach me how to talk to girls, how to be mm-hmm. socially cool. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of awkwardness there, a little anxiety oh, in certain situations, which at that time I felt like I was wrong, weird or something was wrong with me. Most kids have anxiety when you're 18 and 19 years old, right? Well, like, sure, I absolutely. Know that. Mm-hmm. So right. I start drinking to alleviate that. And as you, we all know, my God, did it work well. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, yeah. it was the thing that made <laughs> alcohol so tough for me is that not only did it work as advertised, it worked better than I even could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was everything that I wanted to be. Like, I was never like overly shy. But I wasn't like the coolest guy in the room. I wasn't like right. the guy that could talk to every girl. I wasn't like the guy that was a life of the party. But when I started drinking, mm-hmm. I became that. And this was bringing out the fun side of me and the bold mm-hmm. side of me and the brave. Yeah. And guys, I lived that life for 19 years. I started drinking when I was 19. I didn't stop drinking until I was 38. Mm-hmm. And I tell people part of what got me to write bamboos and the reason I needed to stop is because my life was actually really good with alcohol, but I recognized that I could be much better without it. And it only took me giving it up before I could really give myself the chance to experience that. Um, But Nate, to answer your question, it was like I saw what society showed alcohol was giving us and what it would do. And I believed it subconsciously. And then I let, and I didn't recognize how I wanted to live my life based on everything I saw in the movies, everything I saw yeah. from people that came above me. Um, and it was something that was really hard to break until I got myself to a point in which I can recognize that it wasn't serving me long term as I thought it was. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in the DUI. Uh, yeah. Was your was your decision to quit? Did that happen around the time? Was that a bit of a wake up call, or did you continue? Uh, I, I, here's what I know from my own experience. Yeah. And, and uh, so I, I have some experience with alcohol. Uh, my primary addiction is, is sexual. But I do know this. Uh, denial is really, really, really a powerful tool. Right. And I, I can minimize and I can explain and I can rationalize. Yeah. So what was your experience around the DUI and, and how close was that to your awakening to maybe this isn't working as well as maybe life would be better if I quit. No, thank great question. So it, when it happened, 2015, um, I thought at the moment it wasn't great, but I thought I was okay, right? I didn't yeah. think, I just, I knew I didn't drink all the time. And here was the reality of where it was tough for me and why I had to change things. Um, I was unfortunately what most people would consider subfunctional type, which means that alcohol never affected my ability to do my job in some way because my life was really good. So I was in sales. Yeah. yeah. And as you know, most people know in sales, part of my job is to schmooze my clients. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Dinners, bars, happy mm-hmm. hours. I mm-hmm. mean, and that's the lifestyle. I tell, I always joke with people, if you think college is your undergrad in drinking, going into a sales job. <laughs> I mean, yeah. dude, like maybe your PhD. Yeah. Because once I got into that world, everybody drink. And I looked at my mentors. I looked at my bosses. I looked at my boss's bosses. And every time, when we think about the concept of drinking, mm-hmm. it's relative to those around us. Mm-hmm. So as I compared how much I drank to my peers and the people that I look up to, they were drinking as much or more than I am. So I'm right. doing financially well for myself. They're doing even better financially than I was. 
So yeah. it didn't dawn on me that I had a problem because externally, if you look at my life, my life was great. Mm-hmm. So no, that wasn't the wake up call for me because I had uh-huh. enough money to pay for the lawyer. Mm-hmm. I got uh-huh. reduced from a DUI to a reckless driving, right? Mm-hmm. So it yeah. just went down. So there's that. So it didn't really affect my life. And then of course, Uber came out and got pretty damn. Using it, I didn't have to worry about a DUI anymore. I could yeah. just pay for somebody to <laughs> pick me up. Yeah, um, but no, man. So, but but you know, I, I I did. But I will say this though, Nate. To your point, it did make me pause and think about it. I I would be lying to you if I didn't say I paused and thought about it. And actually, I think yeah. I stopped drinking for about thirty days. But then yeah. I was like, okay, I'll be fine. I'm not going to worry about it. And I went back to yeah. drinking. Mm-hmm. But it did kind of stay. It was one of those instances where I had from time to time that said, hey, Ken, is this really making the best version of your life that you want to create? And it was one yeah. of those moments that kind of pinged in the back of my memory. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I, um, uh, Ken, I work in a uh, private practice as a recovery coach. And um, very often when people come to see me, uh, by the time they get to me, they've pretty well concluded that what they're doing isn't working. They're not ready to say whether or not they're maybe um, uh, fully addicted or whatever. And that, and honestly, that doesn't matter to me. I want them, I want to explore their relationship with alcohol basically. But people often are coming to me hoping that I can help them find a managed moderation way uh, to not uh, completely have to stop this behavior, even though they're having multiple unwanted outcomes, you know, that aren't ending well and uh, relationships and so forth. But but here's the interesting thing. When they come to a conclusion that no matter how they self-identify, mm-hmm. uh, that they want to change their relationship with alcohol, and that may include cutting it out completely, um, they feel like they've got to make an excuse to the whole wide world why they don't mm-hmm. drink. Right. And so uh, I even I was talking to a guy the other day who is a he works in a, a lot of uh, kind of high end wheeling and dealing and getting investors to buy companies. And he's sort of the guy that pulls all the right people together and makes the deal. And then somebody buys something like a hospital or something, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's one of those kind of deals. And he told me that he actually goes to the bartender or to the server that they're going to have that night when he takes people out for these big, you know, like you said, these big schmoozing dinners. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he says, I'm going to order a vodka tonic, but you're just going to bring me um, soda and lime. Really? And yeah. And he gives them, you know, a little money and they said, yes, sir, no problem. We've got you covered. Don't worry about it. And so he'll sit there and order another vodka tonic. Anybody else want anything? And everybody else is getting boozed up and he's not. But the point is, he's not trying to be duplicitous. He's in a situation where he um, doesn't feel comfortable saying, I just don't drink. Yeah. Because he believes that culture that he works and lives in, like you said, the, the PhD of drinking uh, is requiring that of him. So what do you say to folks that feel like they they can't even be honest about the fact that they're just not going to do this? Yeah, yeah, David, so hard. How, how long has he not been drinking? Is he relatively new? Uh, fairly. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it is something I try not to judge. I don't. I, everyone has to walk their own journey, right? Mm-hmm, I'm very, mm-hmm. very believing in that and supportive of individuals doing what works for them. Because if it works for you, who am I to say you shouldn't be doing that? Mm-hmm. If it keeps right. you from drinking, I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah. Um, but what I will say personally, I believe in 
just being honest with people. I, mm-hmm. the, the, for me, it's just challenging to create lies upon lies in which you got to remember what you're saying <laughs> and what you told someone else. Mm-hmm. Versus, oh, yeah, I told someone that I had a headache or I told someone mm-hmm. that blah, blah. Like it just it becomes more of a challenge and, and mm-hmm. difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So for me, because I get this question often, I, I advise people just to be honest, because mm-hmm. in my opinion, when you put the layers and the lies in front of you, it makes it another reason to then say, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. It becomes so challenging for you. You're like, well, hell, I should just drink then. Mm-hmm. If it's this hard not to drink, I should just drink. Mm-hmm. What I've learned and what I've discovered is that when you're honest and you're just straight up and you're just telling people how you feel, mm-hmm. not only do they respect it and they they re- they receive it, they don't really, they don't judge you, mm-hmm. but oftentimes they're curious and they want mm-hmm. to understand because let's be honest, like I said, my DUI, I was in the back of my head. Maybe this wasn't serving me. I didn't stop, but maybe it's there. Mm-hmm. If I had met someone that said, hey, can I don't drink and, and my life is great, I would have been like, man, how do you do that, right? It may have prompted, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of people that have those type of situations that mm-hmm. they have something back here. And when they meet someone, for me, it's an opportunity. I never want to preach to anybody. Like, mm-hmm. And this is the mm-hmm. this thing I tell people all the time. This is about, about, I say it in my book, too. I don't really care if you drink or not. Like that's the thing that really sometimes for mm-hmm. people they're like, oh, well, I'm going to drink. Do you mind? No, I don't. Yes, <laughs> I, no, I don't care. Like what you right. drinking has nothing to do with me. That was uh-huh. a decision I made. Mm-hmm. What I just want people to do is to be aware. The reason I wrote Bamboozled and the reason I wrote Ain't of and created Ain't of is because when I drank in college at 19 years old and I was going through my hangovers and stuff like that, I was under the impression that. The only time alcohol was affecting me was that next day. Mm-hmm. And when I was mm-hmm. hungover, when I wasn't at 100%, that's how alcohol was hurting me. Other than yeah. that, I was fine. I didn't recognize all the long-term effects that right. alcohol was giving. Right. I didn't recognize all the physiological changes mm-hmm. that was happening in me that could eventually get me to the point where I couldn't stop drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. So when I share with people the reason I drink, it's not because alcohol is the devil. It's because I use the term alcohol conscious because Mm -hmm. I'm conscious of how alcohol doesn't help me. And just like someone who's health conscious, don't eat fried food, try Mm -hmm. not to eat sugary foods. Mm -hmm. I'm alcohol conscious because I want to build a better version for myself. And longevity wise, I want to make sure I live a better quality of life when I get older. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. why I'm honest with people because I just want them to think about their self that way and if you want to drink, drink. Just know what you're giving up when you do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just noticed yesterday, I think it was yesterday or yesterday, the day before, a press release from the Health Department of Canada. Yeah. Uh, Canada for years has followed the standard line of there are uh, safety guidelines for drinking. That, that uh, if you're drinking more than, you know, two drinks a day for a mm-hmm. man, one drink a day for a woman, whatever, then it's unsafe. They reverse themselves on the basis of research. Yep. <laughs> and I, I and I imagine it must just confuse and probably piss off a few million <laughs> Canadians, right? <laughs> also they're saying else in the world too. That's yeah. what they're saying. Uh, there's there's no safe level, really. Uh-huh. There's no safe level yep. of alcohol use. Uh, I infer I, uh, from what you said that your sales career didn't tank when you stopped drinking. No. So to go back to David, what you said. And so my advice, be honest, mm-hmm. because when you're honest, people respect it. 
And you yeah. can learn, I wrote about this in Ana, you can learn other ways to build a relationship with them. And it actually gives you an opportunity to build a deeper relationship with them, right? Uh-huh. right. Because when we drink, even though we think we're having a great time with our buddy over here, oftentimes that interaction is super superficial. It's, mm-hmm. it's not really yeah, yeah. getting intimate or really knowing somebody. When you're doing things other than just drinking, you give yourself the opportunity to really build a deeper connection with somebody as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you yeah. can do it without drinking. Now, I will say, similar to your your friend, uh, Dave, I would drink soda water because mm-hmm. your body is used to having something in your hand. And when right. you're at a bar, it just feels weird. If mm-hmm. you know, yeah, right. It feels weird. That's mm-hmm. one of the little tricks you can have. So you can do that. And you can still learn. And what happens is, you're, you're used to the social inter- interaction with alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. We're used to doing everything with alcohol. When you stop drinking, there is going to be three to six, nine-month period in which you have to relearn how to do those things without alcohol. Mm-hmm. So how to mm-hmm. socialize with people, how to talk to people of the opposite sex if you're dating, how mm-hmm. to dance mm-hmm. in front of people, how mm-hmm. to have sex. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dude, it's real, right? If yeah. you're not yeah, yeah. dancing in front of people w- without drinking, when you stop drinking, it's going to be awkward at first. And yeah. you got to get used to it. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like so. And so you. T- I-, I figured it out over time. Having sex. Having sex is a big one. Yeah. I used to always drink when I had sex. And then I figured out, all right, I we're not drinking, so... We're not going to, we got to still have sex. We're not going to stop that. Mm-hmm. And then you figure out how it can be so much better because mm-hmm. you're actually present. And you remember, I remember, this is funny, but I'm not joking. I remember waking up and being like, did we have sex last night? <laughs> 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 you couldn't remember, yeah. right? How how terrible is yeah. something you're doing to have fun and you can't even remember that you did it, right? <laughs> and, and you know that if you did, if you can't remember it, you must have just been awesome, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. How great were you at it? You yeah. Can't remember. Yeah, that um, must have just been a terrific uh, experience for all concerned at that all point. All parties involved. But you have to learn. Once you learn how to do it without it, then you become so much more control and right. better after it. And so yeah. I just tell people, give it some time and you'll get there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It is a relearning of um, a lot of things because we don't even realize how many uh, ways that we lean on our, our many medicators, but especially those that alter our you know conscious level just a little bit. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's, uh, I mean, what's interesting to me too, is even like, uh, I feel like alcohol is just more prevalent in, in our culture than, um, I think than it ever really has been. We've got Mm. the kind of the wine mom culture. We've got the dad, you know, bourbon tasting culture. We got Mm -hmm. the, you know, we've got all the different little, little groups that like to kind of have a let's not forget the hipster craft beer culture the, and the hipster craft beer culture you know but uh <laughs> you know we've got all these all these little pockets where everybody is kind of just engaging in their you know front porch wine and their whole little thing um but uh when we take those things away uh a lot of times uh, you know when we realize that gosh i don't know can i can i still go over and hang out with my People mm-hmm. that I, you know, have been with, you know, if the, if the whole thing's really built around uh, wine, you know, like yep. book club. Well, is that really just, you know, wine night for <laughs> women that like to read? I don't know. <laughs> A lot of times it is. But uh, yeah. I guess I'm, what, what I'm getting at is that, uh, you know, it's it's so prevalent in so many areas of our culture now. And I'm also, though, hearing more and more people saying, I'm going to back off a minute. I, yep. I think yeah. I need to just 
take a, a break, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, I'm wondering if you feel like, um, we've created kind of this permissive, uh, culture where, where, uh, you know, we're sending two, we're sending two messages to everybody, yep. you know? Um, you know, come and be a part of our thing. It's cool. We drink wine. We have a thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I have a, I have a client that goes to a women's Bible study that drinks wine, you know? (laughs) Yeah. They're not a, they're not a Baptist group, but they they do do it. And uh, yeah, but you know, it's like, uh, you know, come and do this. Everybody's cool. We're doing these things. And then, um, but you may, you know, if you have a problem, you you have to decide where you're going to fit in all this, you know, I don't know. No, Dave, loud and clear in the sense that, so it's in everything. So we talk about it in Bamboozled, about the fact that there's a, like, and I think it's um, it's something that we don't recognize because, to your point, it's become pervasive in everything we do. And a lot mm-hmm. of it has to do with social engineering that happened to us when we are kids, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're six, seven years old, you're going to birthday parties. You see the adults over in the corner drinking alcohol at, at birthday parties, right? At right, weddings, right. at shower, wedding showers, mm-hmm. everything you see is around alcohol now if you look at movies in hollywood this is what our kids are seeing all the time yeah what we're right. seeing all the time you will just see it hollywood will make it seem like everybody drinks all the time and they're right going to put it in front of you so you're thinking as i do things have a bible study have a, uh, a mm-hmm. book night then mm-hmm. yeah let me get some alcohol because that's what people do mm-hmm. the reality though is more so nate what you just talked about most people don't drink as much as they that Hollywood would leave us to believe because mm-hmm. if you look at the CDC guidelines or not CDC guidelines but the drinking um, 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 metrics in the United States, yeah. if you drink one to two drinks a day, so we talk about the CDC guidelines initially was in the United States one to two drinks a day, one if you're a woman, two if you're a man. Canada's changed that, but that was what they recommended. If you drink one to two drinks a day. If you drink one drink a day, you're going to be in the top 70%, the top 30% of all the drinkers in the United States. The top, if you drink one drink a day, if mm-hmm. you drink two drinks a day, you're going to be in the top 80% or the top 20%. So mm-hmm. 20% of the, the people that drink. So it's, most people drink one to two drinks per week. Mm-hmm. 60% of America drink one to two drinks per week. So the people that are drinking are drinking a lot of alcohol versus those that don't drink at all. Dave, you'd mentioned about moderation. Mm-hmm. It is just really challenging because the way alcohol is engineered, mm-hmm. it makes you not be able to moderate. You're trying mm-hmm. to moderate something yeah. that was chemically created mm-hmm. for you to want more of it, for mm-hmm. you not right, to right. moderate, right? right? You will be going against your physiological structure to be able to not and resist alcohol. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. right so right. I just tell people like, you got to understand what you're dealing with here. It is is something that Amer- the United States Hollywood wants you to feel like you're all everyone's doing it right, and then it's chemically created to make you want it more. So if you're trying to toe that balance and do both, it's going to be really really hard. But mm-hmm. as as um, Jack Canfield said, you know, ninety nine cent is a bitch, a hundred percent is a breeze. Mm-hmm. It's so much easy to give it up because mm-hmm. once you give it up your body eventually gets back to normal and you won't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you try to kind of do toe both lines and do both, it becomes really, really hard in which you, you're trying to figure out who you are on the inside. Yeah. Don't you think that that, that impulse toward moderation 
comes from, I, I sense that there's a pervasive ambivalence among drinkers. And I put myself still in that camp. So mm-hmm. uh, where I want to stop and I don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, amb- I'm ambivalent about it. What I really would like would be uh, to rarely drink, but always have the option to have a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Uh, right? Mm. Uh, that would be the, the best case scenario. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. If it were possible. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, okay, uh, okay. And, and my cerebral cortex, the rational part, the conscious part of my brain, knows that practically is impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, right? yeah, because once your brain uh, normalizes a behavior, and especially right. if it depends on that behavior to manage, you know, anxiety, shame, frustration, I mean, name your unpleasant feeling. Yeah. Uh, that, if you don't drink for a month, but you say on Sunday, you know, I'm going to be with my family. So we're, it's going to be Easter. We're going to have wine. I'm going to drink. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But then I'm not going to drink for two or three weeks, but then I'm going to drink because I'm going to so-and-so's wedding. And then I'm going to not drink for two or three weeks. But the thing that happens is you keep reminding yourself and, and Ken, you uh, tell me if the, your research, you know, uh, supports this or not, but you're reminding your brain, oh, that's that thing we do. And you're keeping that impulse alive, you know, so. It's not going away. So here's the thing, right? How we're creating, the reason that we are addicted to alcohol or we become addicted or we want more of it is the reason we are alive as a human species. Mm -hmm. Like you you can't change who who we are. Mm -hmm. So dopamine, if you artificially create dopamine, right? If Mm -hmm. you go back to our Neanderthal times, that told us something was good. Mm -hmm. So because it's a learning mechanism, to your point, dopamine is a learning mechanism. Back in our Neanderthal times, it let us know something was good and we had to learn that it was good and look all around us about what it was good in that environment because we didn't know when we were going to see that again. So mm-hmm. we might, mm-hmm. this good thing that we just discovered, we got to remember everything about it. And our body is telling us because you rarely get this, you need to make sure you remember it. And by the way, I want you to really want it because I need to give you give a reason for you to search it because the body mm-hmm. needs it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was how we created. That's what helped us live. That's what helped us to do things that help us versus things that hurt us. In the world that we live today in which dopamine is chemically engineered because of alcohol, our bodies have not naturally adapted to understand that it's readily available. Mm-hmm. So when right. you drink it, your body is going to want it a lot because that's what kept us alive. Mm-hmm. So as long mm-hmm. as to your that your analogy was very well put, as long as you keep it alive in you by every three or four weeks drinking, every mm-hmm. two or three months drinking, it's never going to die. And what happens is over time, your body can, potent- can potentially begin to want and crave it. And that's what I tell people, listen, if you want to drink, drink. I don't have a problem with it. I tell people all the time, I don't regret my drinking days. Drinking was amazing. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of stories. I have a lot of good stuff that happened to me because of drinking. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I think you need to give it up. I think everyone needs to start thinking, should they be drinking as much as they are at the age of 30? I honestly believe that. Mm-hmm. And I don't care who you are. At the age of 40, I think everybody should stop drinking. And the reason of that, because... How much more detrimental alcohol becomes to you after 40 versus before it? Mm-hmm. Your body is changing in a number of different ways. And the, the negative effect that alcohol have on you from increasing your chances of ca- cancer, 
cognitive decline that can that turn into dementia, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's as mm-hmm. you get older, and then your chances of doing harming yourself because you get drunk faster and you might do some dumb stuff that it only takes one time for you to completely ruin your life because of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The effects are way much way greater. And then I tell people, and Nate, you mentioned about decadism, right? One of the big attributes of decadism for it to work is for you to live a long life. Like the longer mm-hmm. you live, the more awesome, amazing stuff you can do. So if you want to decrease how long you live, keep trying to drink past your 40. You're going to live a lot lo- less time versus mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you quit and you allow your body to heal itself, your liver to heal itself, and for your body to grow. So I tell people, at 40 years old, you need to give up alcohol because mm-hmm. the quality of your life is going to be hurt much more negatively because of it. Yeah. And I, wow. heard, I heard the other day that there's a, um, kind of a, some new research about... Uh, the longer people wait to quote, you know, get sober or quit or whatever, uh, it's it's less likely the older you are. So if you're, let's say, a guy in your sixties mm. and you get the report that your liver enzymes are, you know, off the charts and pre-seratic liver and whatever, whatever, um, it's really, really statistically unlikely that in your mid sixties you're really going to be able to make that that journey into. And and yet I, I, I'm reluctant to share that because I want anybody to feel like there's hope and, and, and you can, if you want to, you know, yeah. and I would never tell anybody not to embark on that, but it's just interesting that statistically, the older we get, the more entrenched our, our brains and our habits and our, um, our dependencies are in these things, uh, that our bodies, and that's when our bodies are really show the wear and tear of it. You know, I'm wondering how much Mm -hmm. dementia we're going to see, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now compared to what we have to this point, just simply because of our increased um, use of this. uh, Yeah. I use the car analogy, Dave, and I tell people this all the time, right? So if you get a car, a new car out of the, off the lot, right? And then you're like, oh, I got this brand new car, Jeep or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and do some donuts in the parking lot and, squ- and do and get a little crazy. Mm-hmm. It's a brand new car. It's probably going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But if you take a car that's 20, 30 years old and mm-hmm. try to do some donuts in the parking lot, there's a good chance someone's going to break in that. <laughs> wheels that, fall off. That wheels are going to yeah, fall off. That's, and that's right. what I tell people when you get older, when you drink, you're giving yourself much more um, um you're making yourself much more accessible to risk alcohol is a carcinogen right that we all know that right it, mm. it causes cancer so as you drink your body filters it through your liver the older you get the 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 wor- the less that your fu- liver functions as well as it does mm-hmm. so it's just natural that your body's not going to filter it out as well so instead of that carcinogen being filtered from your body through your urine it's going to stay in your body longer mm-hmm. which then greatly increases the chances of you getting cancer. Like I tell people like, it's a scientific thing. I'm not trying to scare you. Mm-hmm. I just want you to understand the trade-off that you're making and what the alcohol is actually putting you at risk for every time you make the decision. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I just want to make sure people understand that. But I will say this, here's the thing, other thing I want to say, even though and you're right, Dave, as you quit, it is harder. But if you do decide to quit, your body can still bounce back. Right. I think about my girl, Janet Guron. I don't know if you know Janet, but she has a, a podcast called Tribe Sober. She mm. started Tribe Sober when she was in her 60s. She stopped okay. drinking when she was in her 60s, like mm-hmm. 66, I believe. And now she's like 72 and she's killing it, killing wow. the game, as they say. Mm-hmm. And because she stopped, she better late than never, mm-hmm. her body healed 
it it, it rehealed re itself. She got back her mental cognition. To think mm -hmm. about how long she'd been drinking. Mm -hmm. And she once, like most people were in the clouds, she got out of it and now she's living an amazing life. So even though, hey, it is harder to stop when you're older, if you do stop, your body will heal itself with time. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. and encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Say, Ken, uh, a few minutes ago, you used the term decageism. Can you yeah. unpack that for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So decageism was something, and like Janet's a great example of this. When I think about the concept of not drinking, I tell people, you have given yourself a gift. Mm. It is a huge gift for what you can create for the rest of your life. Oftentimes, when I, was, when I stopped drinking at 38, I was like, man, I wish I would have stopped drinking at 28 because what I could have done in my 20s versus my 30s, right? The late 30s, almost 40s. Mm -hmm. But then I just started thinking about it. If you got someone, the average age in the, uh, the United States, I think it's like 78.6. I think in the United Kingdom, it's like 81 years. And Canada, it's like 80 years and some change. So if you, you could live to 80 years old, what's the difference between an 80-year-old and a 70-year-old? Not a whole lot if you actually think about it, right? Because mm. you like you in the sense of you got some eighty years old that are like spry, they're walking with no cane, and then you got some seventy years old that are in wheelchairs and can't walk a bit. Mm -hmm. The difference is the quality of their life that they live when they were younger mm -hmm. and what they did for themselves. So I started thinking that all right, I wish I would have stopped when I was twenty eight. I didn't, but I learned now that I shouldn't drink anymore. Does it really matter that I wasn't twenty eight? Because 38 is only a number that I've given in my mind. What if I think about in the sense of if I was 28, what would I tell myself at the time? Stop drinking one. What else would I tell myself and what would I do? Mm -hmm. So from then I said, you know what? With decageism, you're only as old as what you think you are. And the way you should do it is play a mental game with yourself in which you tell yourself you're 10 years younger instead of subscribing to society's definition of the age you are now. So if you go back and you could talk to yourself 10 years ago, what would you tell yourself to do? What lessons have you learned over the last 10 years that you feel like you would have done when you're 28? You know what? Just do them now. You <laughs> have the answers, right? Uh -huh. yeah. Just do the things that you know you should be doing. And then look at who you want to be 10 years from now. So if I stop drinking now, I have given myself a gift. I could sit around the house, watch Netflix all day and lollygag and not do anything with it. Or I can get to work at the greater mental cognition that I've given myself and the ability to work hard and really do some amazing stuff. And I can build a better version of myself that I would have never thought I could have built before drinking. Mm -hmm. So then you look in the future and say, who do you want to be 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. Then you just start working towards that person. Mm -hmm. You put in the time every single day to work to that person to be the very best version of yourself. I can do things now that I could never done when I was before. So you need to then put into work to become the person that you can never have came before. So decageism is about going to your, looking at yourself 10 years in the past, who would you, what would you, advice would you have given yourself 10 years ago? I'll learn that or write that down, execute on that today, mm -hmm. and then go 10 years in the future and say, who do you want to be? And then start working to become that person. So when yeah. I th think about sobriety or alcohol consciousness, I use this term called a wallet analogy. And this helps you not, not go back to drinking either. I got this from one of my good friends, one of the podcasts, he, he just mentioned it about like, so one of the, my how to quit parts is something called the meds, M-E-D-S, M-E, they all stand for something, but the S stands for success seeking. Mm. So one of my strategies to keep you from not going back to drinking is 
the wallet analogy is you need to do something with your life that you could never have done with drinking that makes you say, if I go back to drinking, I'm going to give this up. And so how the wallet analogy works is if you have a wallet and you're walking down the street and someone comes up to you and is like, hey, give me your wallet. And you have no money in the wallet whatsoever. It's a big, big dude. That you, like you could fight him, but you might lose. You're not 100% mm. sure if you'll win if you fought him. But he doesn't have a gun. But he's like, give me your wallet or I'm, I'm going to beat you up. You don't have no money in your wallet. You have no money in your wallet. You have no credit cards in your wallet. You have no pictures. You have nothing in your wallet that holds you to it. Mm -hmm. Most people are going to like, here, man, take the wallet. I'm not going to mm -hmm. get in a fight and have you stab me because I have a wallet with nothing in it, right? Mm -hmm. But what if you had $1,000 in your wallet? What if you have all your credit cards and your identification in your wallet? Mm -hmm. What if you have a picture of your kids in your wallet that you know you can never get back again? Mm -hmm. So when someone comes in, they're like, hey, give me your wallet. You're not sure if you can take this dude. But you're probably going to give it a shot and you're not going to give it up so easily. Mm -hmm. So the wallet analogy is when you have this sobriety or alcohol consciousness you've given yourself, you have to do something with it to put money in your wallet. You have to mm -hmm. try to be a better version of yourself. Try to force yourself to become somebody you never could have been without it. Because if you're not doing something with that sobriety or with that alcohol consciousness, when someone gives you a beer, you're like, why the hell not? Because mm -hmm. I'm not really doing it. But when you think, Hey, I couldn't, if I start drinking again, look at all these things that I have accomplished that I couldn't do anymore. So you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I've already invested too much in my sobriety. I've invested too much in myself being alcohol conscious that I'm not willing to give it up just for a night out on the town or just to feel good for a weekend. Mm. And it's a tip that can keep people sober in the face of some temptation. That's, that's oh, great. That's really, really yeah, good. That's a great advice. And, that's, really, and really. that can apply to many things uh, as well. Um, yeah. you know, having a bigger why. So that's it. Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Decadism yeah. has yeah. nothing to do with drinking. It, ha it, it can help you with it, but it's more about people just understanding that it's never too late to become the best version of yourself. Just got to start working towards it today. Mm. That's yeah. fantastic. Well, the new book again is bamboozled. Yeah. And, uh, for listeners who would really love to connect with this guy, Ken, after they hear this show, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, get the book, thebamboozledbook.com. It's out. It was well, on Amazon. So the digital version is out now. So get the digital version. It's out now. Start reading it. The physical version comes out on August the 1st. Get the physical version, too. You can pre-order it right now. Get both of them. Uh -huh. I tell people, you read the, the, the digital version. Hopefully, it changes your life. Leave me a review. Buy the physical version, and I will find you and sign it for you some type of way, right? So yeah. I, I want to thank you for that. But it's on Amazon, so go to Amazon right now. If you put uh, Bamboozle Book, Ken Middleton, it'll come up there. I don't know, um, on that major platform. Or go to thebamboozlebook.com. You can go to it, and then kenmiddleton.com is my website where they can go and read all my articles at Enough or, or anything else they want to know about. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Have you done an audio version of the book yet? You know, I'm going to, well, here. Yeah, right. get on that, brother. Listen, get listen. on it. Hey, listen, look, Nate, it got to sell enough copies first. So hopefully this thing <laughs> sells. Listen, if it sells, I told, I said, listen, as long as it sells a certain number of copies come August or September, the plan is to do an audio book. Because a lot okay, of people good. like audio books. So that's the plan. Oh, man. And that, I'll tell you, as somebody in the world of publishing, that segment of the readership is growing every year. It is. So, yeah. Yeah. 100%. All right. I'm picking up what Fantastic. you're putting down. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you so much for joining us. This has yeah, been man. such a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. And I hope uh, I I hope we have another one sometime in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, when the when the physical book comes out, if you guys want to have me back, I'm here. 
Love, hey, love okay. absolutely. Right. Give it, shoot us an email and uh, remind us when it's out, and we'll absolutely have you back and talk more. There's a lot more to okay. say. <laughs> love it. Love okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Um, Nate, you know, it, it occurred to me as, uh, you know, we talked with Ken and, um, and, and, and I just, I love that he's kind of asking a cultural question in a way too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and one of the things that, that I always ask people, uh, when they come in to see me is, okay, how is this serving you? You know, yeah. how is alcohol serving you? How is this behavior, whatever it is serving you? Uh, because uh, everybody's getting something out of it what we do. We don't, you know, we yeah, don't yeah. do anything for no reason. Right. And, There's always uh, a payoff somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's real important for everybody to kind of be able to identify that. But then when you're running on, when we're running out of payoffs, <laughs> yeah, right, you know, right. then we start asking ourselves hard questions about, you know, maybe uh, this is not worth it for what mm-hmm. little right. I'm getting out of it or whatever. Right, but I, right, I love right, that right, he's right. got some really good resources on his, um, on his page. And, uh, I'm looking real forward to seeing the book, but, uh, yeah, it, it just, uh, I think it's a, it's a real timely thing because everybody's not going to just fall on their sword and declare themselves an alcoholic and go and, you know, mm-hmm. go into a complete 12 step model or whatever modality. I mean, there are certainly people that are problematic and acute that will need to do that. But, mm-hmm. but I love that he's asking a question that a lot of people could stand to, explore with him so yeah 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 well uh i know i've looked at the calendar david you're loading us up we got some we got some some more uh fascinating conversations coming up in the weeks ahead i think Mm -hmm. it's going to be i think it's going to be a really good season for the positive sobriety podcast yeah this i guess is about a wrap for this week by the way listeners we love to hear from you we love your suggestions. We love your feedback. We even love your pushback. If you have something about this episode that really bothered you, if you think we missed something or misstated something, it's okay for you to tell other people, but tell us. Yeah. Give us, yeah, drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's it for this. Uh, oh, 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 also. And if you found this episode helpful, if you like the show, do us a favor and give us a rating wherever it is you get your podcasts. That drives us higher in the rankings and makes it more likely that other potential listeners will find us. Well, that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe by <laughs> Kathy Gifford. 